0: You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. This fall, I sat down with Jane Norling and Marty Williams, both members of People's Press. People's Press was a collectively run underground press in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1970s. They printed everything from books on Vietnam and the Black Panther Party to flyers and pamphlets for local social action. Hi, I'm Jane. Hi, I'm Marty. And uh, we are here in Berkeley at Jane's house. I'm Lonnie. People's Press was an organization that started in the very late 60s and early 70s, and it started with one publication. By the time Jane and I became involved in it, they were wanting to move beyond simply doing publications. They wanted to become a print shop, a print shop that served the progressive and political community in San Francisco. And... That's how we came into it. So it had a little life in terms of publications. Jane, do you remember the first title? Vietnam, there's an ecology primer, a, a panther primer, and Vietnam. We're using the word primer. Uh, and if you see them, their they're size is about eight and a half by 11 size as a booklet. And they were taking on issues of the moment. The Vietnam War was the first one, and then they were approached by people who were working with the Black Panther Party to produce a basic understanding of the Black Panther Party aimed at white people to understand it, and speaking as white people. And then there was a third one that uh, this group of founders was approached by people uh, in the environmental justice movement, and they had no idea that they would be addressing that topic but the pieces were designed to be written plainly and simply so they could be used by organizers. Three men, Terry Cannon, Bob Gabriner, and Frank Chichorka were the three men who started working on these original publications. They were involved in producing, designing, and getting these materials printed. And then when we asked Bob, how did you decide to open a print shop and invite Jane and me and a lot of other people to come to a meeting to put where they put forth that vision? And uh, he said it was very organic, that basically they were thinking, well, if we're going to be producing materials useful to people in the organizing movements, perhaps we should have the means of production at our hands, instead of having to pay a lot of money out for other people to do it. And Frank Chichorka, who was an artist and interested in production, was instrumental in also supporting that. And Marty and I learned to operate the press and we were reading a Navy manual, about how to put it together. It was easy, easily done. So that's, that's the way we learned. We taught ourselves how to become printers. There was a movement printer who had an established print shop that they, you know, offered themselves to, to teach us how to do it. And we really, we learned all the aspects of small offset printing. And that meant that everybody in the collective needed to learn every everything from operating the press to operating the copy camera, stripping negatives, all the different steps in offset printing that are kind of archaic now, but were the essential way to get an idea, a written idea or an image to the printed page. And they were sort of essentially easy to operate, and the way the way cars used to, before they became run by computers. I'm curious how People's Press was organized. As other people were brought in, none of us quite know exactly how each person got there, but, but people knew somebody, and it was probably an accumulation, maybe about 12 of us at the beginning and we brought with us different skills some people journalism writer others better at finances i came out to san francisco after a year on in on the job training at random house in book design and at that time it was before computers and so it was when book printing was still done linotype and so there was a there was a whole structure to to design at that point and i brought that with me we believed that everybody should learn all the, all the different parts of running the shop, from sales to operating all of the machinery. And I don't know, we divvied ourselves up, or maybe we rotated. You know what? I don't, I don't remember. Like, we rotated during the week, but it, it, You know, eventually it came to um, people did what they were most comfortable and most skilled at. So all the labor was volunteer? Yes, but I do remember that When I was in the office every day and printing, I do remember that I got like, maybe for a few months I got like $40 a week or something. Okay. Because I actually needed it. Mm -hmm. And everyone else had some other ways that they were getting money or had already figured out how to live. And then Jane pointed out we had one collective member who joined our collective because he knew a lot of the people in it. He loved the work we were doing, but he joined our collective because he needed a job. And he got for a a quick minute there anyway, I don't know for how long, but Diz was a paid employee because we loved him, we wanted him to come into the work, and he needed money. He was a young, working class man with no resources. From the hate. From the hate. Wonderful. Person and we really wanted him to be part of it. So along the way we made some decisions like that, but for the most part everyone figured out and worked around whatever they either had in terms of money or needed to do. Yeah, for people money. really, you know, it just didn't cost as much back then to live. and People lived in big collective houses or yeah. whatever they were you know, a collective or not. I mean, people kind of figured out some kind of a hustle or a part-time thing, and, and that supported doing the work at People's Press. Mm-hmm. And periodically, I always had to go down and do t- 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 temporary jobs uh, in, uh, with temp agencies. And people found different things. I mean, Bob became a, um, a teacher in the community college system. He's now an educational administrator at San Francisco State University. Some people had family money enough that they had a living allowance. Other people were working, but we did live very cheaply. Most of our entertainment was house parties. Yeah. And and we didn't go to restaurants and stuff. I mean the way now the culture of restaurants or you just go pick up something and we made all of our own food. We were part of a food conspiracies, say in the Haight where I lived then in the early seventies was um, you know, different, different households would take responsibility for, for getting and cutting up and distributing certain food, like somebody would have the cheese, or somebody else would have certain vegetables. And then that grew into Rainbow Grocery, because it couldn't sustain itself, but there were people motivated enough to, to make it be a yeah. store, and that still exists. Because we were in California, there was a large network of people who went to the farms with trucks bought bulk, brought it back to the cities, and then the local food conspiracies, which often happened in church basements and stuff like borrowed spaces, is where the food would come. And for a a sustaining donation, you could then go and and get your food. So there was some money involved, but it it was also labor. We were in the midst of a big movement. We were just a small part of large movements. We were—we had the legacy of the civil rights movement to guide us, but we took very seriously every aspect of our lives. It's so that it's painful if you even go back and read a journal from that time. It's like, oh my God. But, Bob put it really well the other day. He said, we saw the kind of hierarchical constraints of the society our parents had created. And we wanted to do it differently. So we created this flattened, non-hierarchical sort of approach to almost everything we did. And that was intentional. Our crew had a lot of, focus on armed struggle as one of the ways that countries were liberating themselves from U.S. imperialism, and that was a frame for us. When I came out to San Francisco in, in 1970 and started, you know, learning about how imperialism works and going to meetings for, for demonstrations against the Vietnam War, I mean, we went to a lot of meetings, and so in people's houses, people who had who were sort of more had been more involved in, and um, in activities where they may have, where they would have come in contact with Tricontinental or, or the posters of Ospal we were taking guidance from from Ospal and, and events in Cuba yeah I mean that, that so and we're, and we're learning through them. Because I was, I was going to go back to Bob's talking about him and Terry going on the, uh, the journalist conference in, to Cuba, then People's Press printing the North American edition or, of tri grew out of that. None of us could remember exactly how, how long we, we printed that, um, that edition and some of the years aren't in some of them. I, I, I'm thinking that, that that was an education for us, is, is what was coming from the tricontinental you know, block in Latin America. I would say the People's Press people, for the most part, as, as Jane said, we were, many of us, had an opportunity to travel to Cuba on the Vence Brigade or on a journalist trip, or as Jane did, individually as an artist. So Cuba and its relations were central in some way to many of our experiences. And then the liberation movements in Africa and uh, and this the tricontinentalism that you mentioned. So that was our frame. Our frame was international. And that did set us mm-hmm. apart mm-hmm. from many of our anti-war uh Folks and our factory organizing folks who were more focused on labor in this country and those relations, and we were heady with national liberation struggles. Well, we figured there was room for everything. Yeah, it's and, not, and yeah. that's, so we addressed that. That was yeah. that was our mission, and yeah. at the same time, we were printing. You know flyers and posters for local events, then or yeah. you know solidarity events that were yeah. among local people. Every person has gone on to have something that probably got its seeds in this fumbling around business that we were doing, mm-hmm. and have stayed deeply connected to social justice issues. So I I try to keep that in mind and, and for you as a younger person, right, I'm going, do what you can now. And and Frary taught me that too, he said, you have to do today what you can do today so that you can do tomorrow what you can't do today. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive.